Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is another podcast of World Wide Wave, the international LGBT news and current affairs show, every week on Australia's first LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. Surfing the globe, bringing you news, views, and current affairs for the LGBT community. This is the World Wide Wave. It's World Wide Wave time. Joy's international news and current affairs show for and by the LGBTI community. We love taking you around the globe one queer story at a time. I'm Matt, and I'm joined in the Victorian Pride Centre tonight by Alex. Sawadee Krab. And Andrew's back. Hi, everybody. With news from Thailand that marriage equality could shortly be a reality, you might think there is cause for hope for rainbow rights in the region. But with anti-gay sentiment sweeping Indonesia and Brunei, labelled the most unsafe country in the world for queer people, it is clear that LGBTQIA rights in Southeast Asia are are a complex web. But some recent regional reforms might help local activists to advocate for changes in their country. Anthony Lenguire, an Associate Professor in International Relations at Flinders University. Anthony's an expert in queer rights in the region and joined us to give an update on Southeast Asia. Here's a taste of what's coming up tonight. You claim that we have human rights. You claim that human rights apply to everyone. You claim that you want to have a more people-centred and a more people-oriented kind of politics. Well, we're LGBTIQ people. We're people. You know, we have human rights as well. Now, we are featuring Southeast Asia tonight. What's your favourite place, could be a town or country, favourite place in Southeast Asia? Especially if you've sort of been there and, you know, might have been to a Pride event, some, some sort of queer event. ASEAN, also known as Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is a regional political group of 10 countries, Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, uh, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand and of course Vietnam are all members. Despite slow progress on LGBT rights, the regional grouping has recently taken some positive steps in broader human rights issues. Anthony Longois, he is Associate Professor in International Relations at Flinders University in South Australia and specialises in rights in the region. We asked Anthony what is happening politically at the regional level and what it might mean for LGBTQIA rights. Yes, there has been a big change in Southeast Asia generally and, and the intergovernmental organisation, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a range of individual nation states within the organisation historically were very against the ideas of human rights and democracy. You know, going back to the 1990s, there was this thing called the Asian Values Debate, where democracy and human rights were seen as, uh, you know, sort of neo-imperial Western impositions. Uh, homosexuality was seen as, you know, sort of sign of 
Western decadence and so on and so forth. Um, there's still a bit of that that is going on, but the, the big change around uh, human rights in particular is that the at the regional level, ASEAN, the association has adopted its own human rights declaration. They've set up a, a series of human rights uh, organisations and the overarching one is called the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights. So there's been this, this big turnaround where human rights are something that is now talked about in connection with democracy. Um, the countries of the region talk about wanting to have a more people-oriented and people-centred politics. So that all sounds really good for human rights and democracy, right? Yes. <laughs> it's a, a really significant change. The thing about it, though, for those of us who are interested in LGBT rights or the queer community or depending on what kind of terminology you want to use, uh, sexuality and gender diversity rights, the problem is that the human rights declaration that was promulgated by the region uh, explicitly goes out of its way not to include sexuality or gender diversity as uh, grounds on which you can be protected from discrimination. So a lot of the a lot of the standard protections uh, for human rights that you would see in just about any other Bill of Rights, you know, sort of nationally or internationally are, are included, um, but sexuality and gender diversity rights are are not. Although they they do have clauses in there that are around gender when it's viewed through a heteronormative lens. So when you're talking about Know, traditional values, understandings of men and women. Uh, there's a there's a bit of a boost there around protections for women, uh, understood in that sense. But if you're talking about sexual orientation or gender diversity, you know the trans community and so forth. Uh, no. Do you think that exclusion, that explicit exclusion, it, you know, it's a political thing to appease? some of the more hardline countries while well, the progressives might have wanted to go further? Well, that's an interesting question. So let, let's take one of the countries that is uh, progressive as a, uh, you know, in inverted commas, as a way of answering this. So the, the whole push to have a regional human rights system, uh, Indonesia was very important in this. And under these kind of criteria, Indonesia can be described as, as one of the, you know, sort of the small or liberal or although that word doesn't really work but in our politics we sort of understand what we mean there but uh, pushing progressive trying to encourage the region to adopt you know these international norms that are being talked about and adopted everywhere else so from one point of view you could say that uh, Indonesia fulfills these terms but then in Indonesia itself the domestic politics around LGBTIQ rights is going in exactly the opposite direction. So the answer is very, very complicated, really. I mean, I think there's a range of discussions that can be had about why it is that the region even adopted a human rights regime in the first place. Um, you know, was this because there was a kind of a Damascene moment where Southeast Asia suddenly, or the, the intergovernmental organisations anyway, the political elites, uh, suddenly decided that human rights were a good thing, that they believed in them now, or is it some kind of fig leaf? The countries in the region catch so much flack from other countries about human rights that the one way to neutralise that and talk about other things is just to capitulate and say, okay, well, 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 we'll go along with this human rights stuff 
like you want us to, and then we can have a conversation about other things. So there's that kind of discussion. But then when you look at other countries around the world, including countries like Australia and the United States, who would describe themselves as being, you know, on the forefront of pushing for human rights internationally, you know, these liberal Western countries also have very significant problematic human rights records. So in Australia, most people would, uh, at, at the top of sort of the public awareness would be our track record around uh, refugees and asylum seekers uh, and uh, the First Nations peoples. You know, so from some points of view, the countries of the region are being normalised, like any other country that says that it agrees with human rights but has its own human rights problems. So from some points of view, the, the Southeast Asian countries are just sort of, as I said, being, being normalised uh, like that. Although it is certainly the case that across Southeast Asia, there are a range of different uh, positions with respect to human rights in general, but also with respect to sexuality and gender diversity rights. Anthony Longwa, the associate, an associate professor in international relations at Flinders University with Sonjoy 94.9, talking all things Southeast Asia. He makes a good point there. Is it, is it a fig leaf? Is it these nations thinking, well, we'll swallow the uh, values pill of all these other countries that keep taking swipes at us? Or do you think there's genuine change going on? I would like to think there's a little bit of both. I mean, I, you know, I think there's probably that's probably a very uh, astute observation that you know, and a reasonable critique. But I like you know, from someone you know, I've talked about regional groupings with my students, for example, and I have said that it's we are starting to see both the African Union and um, ASEAN starting to adopt starting to not resist the political, cultural dim- influences and dimensions, meaning they're not just talking about trade, mm. which traditionally they shied away from anything to do with political unity, cultural unity, because they didn't want to then have to start dealing with the difficulties, as he talks about, the internal problems. It really comes down to these internal competition, isn't it? Internal dynamics between urban elites and rural Um, more conservative rural, like Indonesia, perfect example, Aceh province versus the rest of the The country almost. Um, But, yeah. Got lots more coming up with Anthony. In fact, we find out what is behind the increased visibility for LGBT people in Southeast Asia. This is Worldwide Wave. Our diverse communities have one home, joy. Hello, Australia. This is Noam, Apple and and Top. From Apple Models in Thailand, the world first transgender model division on Joy 94.9. Because it's all the countries of Southeast Asia yes. coming together and hopefully for some progress. Somebody that has come together with us here at Joy is Carl from Hoppers Crossing, who's just taken out a membership. Thank you so much, Carl. You can become a member at joy.org.au. We put the call out. What's your favourite place, city or country, in Southeast Asia? Well, it's, you know, where how much time you've got. But, yeah, yeah, I will. <laughs> a short my amount. Favorite, <laughs> my favourite city, definitely. Well, Hoi An would be one. We talked Hoi about An, that. lovely. Oh, stealing yeah. my yeah. choice. Oh. Jog, Jog Jakarta. <laughs> I, and I mean Jog Jakarta, not Jakarta. The worst city I've ever been to. 
sorry to the 20 million people live there. Jakarta itself. Oh. I mean, I think everyone agrees it's not the easiest city. Jog Jakarta, small city in eastern Java, lovely. And Perfect Andrew sense. Hoi An for you, what's... Yeah, uh, well, my second choice would be Da Nang, also. Oh, yes. oh yeah, um, okay. That gets Just listed beautiful. as the... Um, got listed as the... the the best city um, in Asia for expats. Oh, oh expats. Yeah. Didn't yeah. know that. Good quality of living, not too big, not too small. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw in Siem Reap in Cambodia oh, yes. or Chiang Mai in northern Thailand. It's hard to call Siem Reap a city, but it is. Yeah, well, overgrown town. Overgrown town. Yeah. 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 Uh, the response to HIV allowed many queer-friendly groups to form under a health banner without um, specifically being labelled an LGBT group. In turn, that's created a community and a solidarity with a few formal structures to support the queer community. But now these groups are becoming more visible and more vocal, asking for and demanding acceptance, discrimination protections and the rights afforded to other citizens. Um, the Associate Professor Anthony Longuois is an international relations expert at South Australia's Flinders University. We asked Anthony if he felt this was just a natural progression in advocacy or was there something bigger going on in Southeast Asia? Well, it is partly a natural progression, but I think there is also something else going on. Um, and I think it is significantly related to the opportunity that has been presented to LGBTIQ groups across the region by this institutional turn to human rights. Because as, as you point out previously, uh, it seemed to be that the, the way you got in, so to speak, was through the health route, right, um, which was absolutely needed anyway on its own terms, uh, the HIV response and, and various other dimensions of health that are related to sexuality and gender identity and expression. So I don't for a minute want to downplay the significance of that and, and its historical role and its contemporary role. It's absolutely vital. But the thing that you get is that, that when, you know, so, so the, the turn to human rights at the regional level happens sort of uh, 2009 is when the, the, what they call the ICHA, the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, was inaugurated. And 2012 is when the ASEAN Human Rights Declaration is promulgated. So my argument is that what that allows people to do, which they in some cases quite literally were not allowed to do previously, is that it allows them to use the language of human rights about themselves. And so they can make claims about human rights. And then because at the international level, like the, the best practice human rights institutions do protect people on uh, grounds of discrimination around sexuality and gender identity expression. So you have this human rights system which allows you to talk about human rights but you're also able to compare it with other ones and say, look, we have this we have this gap, we have this problem, you know, we want to fill that gap. So part of what happens is that people who are engaged in LGBTIQ work across the region are able to start using the language of human rights and they're able to start saying, you know, doing this compare and contrast business and say, look, maybe our human rights regime should also look after LGBTIQ people. And you claim that we have human rights. You claim that human rights apply to everyone. You claim that you want to have a more people-centred and a more people-oriented kind of politics. Well, we're LGBTIQ people. We're people. You know, we have human rights as well. 
you know, it's a very similar kind of strategy and a similar kind of argument that has been used in other jurisdictions um, that have strong rights traditions in politics, including here in Australia, uh, you know, LGBT rights around same-sex marriage and, and uh, adoption and, and, you know, various other responses. So my argument is that, and in some cases this is very explicit, so I think of one organisation which has the name of the ASEAN SOGI Corp. So SOGI, S-O-G-I-E, for people who are not familiar with it, is an acronym like LGBTIQ, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity Expression. So this organisation came into being around about the same time that the human rights regime was instituted in the region for the express purpose of saying, look, we're queer people. We live in Southeast Asia. You political elites are talking about human rights. Well, we're here to claim them. <laughs> okay, and we're, we're going to claim them for queer people. So the organisation is based in the Philippines, but it operates across the region, and it's kind of a, an umbrella organisation that has helped a whole range of other organisations in the region who want to use this turn to the language of human rights and the institutions of human rights in the region as a lever that they can pull on to say, well, as I just said, you guys are talking about human rights. We want them. We think they apply to us as queer people as well as just to your, your uh, quote-unquote normal citizen in any other uh, country in the region. Many of the countries in the past, politicians have used that line that homosexuality is a Western import. Um, it seems that some countries that line is losing its power whilst in other countries it's strengthening then you've got these groups like the ASEAN SOGI caucus who are locals who are empowering local groups to speak up so it's sort of kind of taking that argument out of the picture what's the difference between countries which are able to advance that argument and those that are you know still using that homosexuality as a western import argument well i think even for a lot of people who are on the, as it were, the anti-queer side of politics, <laughs> there is some recognition that this is this is a bit of a, a farce, really, right? Um, I mean, basically, it's a, it's a it's a form of cultural politics, cultural war politics. Uh, in some places, it's very explicitly modelled on what goes on in the West, and in some of the countries actually that have significant Christian religious minorities, the Western playbook around sort of anti-LGBT politics is one that they're very self-consciously utilising. You know, there are examples of this, for example, in, in Singapore and in, in the Philippines. But if we think about the region more broadly, I guess there are two important things to comment on here. One is that the region broadly has a very long and storied set of traditions and, and you know, social traditions, social cultures that include forms of sexuality and gender diversity. Uh, a lot of it is tied into sort of uh, tr traditional social and religious forms across the region that historically date back before, you know, Western interventions in, in the region. So for anyone who has this kind of historical knowledge of what happens in the region, like with anywhere else on the planet, <laughs> sexuality and, and gender identity is something that is there, you know. So there, there are these traditions and in some countries and in some civil society organisations across the region, 
these traditions are quite explicitly drawn on and incorporated into their activism. You know, so there's a whole conversation that goes on around that. But more broadly, I suppose, and, and this perhaps also is one of the things that we've been able to see more with the turn to democracy and the, the and more freedom around the language of human rights in, in the region, is that queer people across the region, you know, who are there, who have always been there, um, have in some places been able to come together and uh, find solidarity amongst themselves and emancipatory practices this has all happened uh, in one form or another over very long periods of time. From South Australia's Flinders University, that's Anthony Longwell, Longwell um, Associate Professor in International Relations on Joy 94.9. A Western thing, the cultural politics, we've heard it so many times before on this show, but the fact that these countries are now following that Western playbook, is that just... Um, is that justifying what has happened before? Is that these countries sort of, uh, you know, making use of what, what we as Western countries have taught them? I mean, yeah, it, it's uh, the hypocrisy of it in the sense that, you know, you blame the West for trying to impose a new regime of human rights that don't fit yet their... Know, the great that he that the great hypocrisy that he raises there, which we know from Africa, is that the laws in place are often post are often colonial era laws, particularly Singapore, Malaysia, and you know it ignores the long history in countries like Thailand regarding gender. But, you know, I saw an interesting story about India, and, and it's, I think it's similar to Thailand. That they're more hung; they don't have an issue with the gender with their history of the third sex, so to speak. But it's the sexual activity thing that they often the countries are struggling to deal with. Mm. But, Co- yeah, yeah. Coming up uh, on Joy 94.9, Anthony has some very interesting views on how effective the United Nations is on LGBT rights in the region. This is World Wide Wave. Joy for you, joy for us. Better together. Joy. Justice C. Ki Un of the High Court of Singapore says Section 377A serves the purpose of safeguarding public morality by showing societal moral disapproval of male homosexual acts. My name is Yang Far. I'm from Ugitaga in Singapore. And I'm proud to be morally disapproved of. And you're on the show that takes you around the globe one queer story at a time, Worldwide Wave. A special hello to everybody listening to us on podcast. You can subscribe to receive our podcast automatically either at joy.org.au forward slash Worldwide Wave or on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave us a review. Now, hey, it's just a couple of days now until the end of financial Mm. year. So, you know, that... Not only is that the time to run out and buy something electronics as a tax deduction, but you can make a donation. Exactly. Make a donation to Joy. You then put it in your tax and get some money back off the government. So uh, we love your donations. We love your support. Just go to joy.org.au and uh, show us the love. The world's longest-running radio show dedicated to international LGBTIQ news and current affairs. This is World Wide Wave from Australia's rainbow radio station, Joy 94.9.
As in many other parts of the world, the rise of visibility and advocacy across Southeast Asia has been accelerated by social media. Whether it's the ability to connect people to groups, to tell stories or to drive political messages, social media has certainly helped many LGBT people to find their tribe and find their voice. Our guest tonight, Associate Professor Anthony Longwear from Flinders University, has an intimate knowledge of queer rights in Southeast Asia. Anthony shared with us why social media has been so important. One of the other components of the story, along with the introduction of this you know, sort of human rights regime and the turn to democracy in some places, and the language of sort of being people-centred and people-oriented, is the whole global transition that we're experiencing about social media and uh, digital technologies and information technology. And so what this has enabled, you know, really shouldn't be downplayed, is that it has enabled people to be able to connect to one another without having to be physically present, to be able to communicate with one another, to be able to share information. That information might be everything from, you know, sort of uh, health practices through to, you know, political strategizing. <laughs> um, it might be about, you know, when someone you know has just been thrown out of their house because their family are religiously conservative and they've just been outed as queer in some way, you know, using those technologies as ways of fundraising to be able to provide money, you know, to be able to provide safety for individual peoples or has happened in a number of places across the region there are networks of um, safe houses. So this is also another piece of the puzzle, really, both from the point of view of enabling, um, maybe we could call it, you know, protected organisation or safe organisation, information, people being able to access information, and, and people being able to access information about themselves. You know, the stories, I was just reading one online this morning, uh, stories about people who are brought up or find themselves living in relatively isolated circumstances but they they know that they're same-sex attracted or trans or you know something like this and because they have online access they're able to find out information about what this might mean in their own personal experience but they're also able to discover that there, there are other people in their own town in their, in their own country who are like this so so that they don't have to believe the propaganda that it is some kind of Western decadent import or, you know, way of corrupting society. And they can actually come to understand that, no, this is just a normal part of being human and that it happens in our society as well. One of the tools that is available to the civil society organisations is the United Nations Universal Periodic Reviews. It really gives a chance for lead agencies in countries to put a particular issue on the agenda at the United Nations level and for other countries to sort of support them in that. What is it about that process that brings change? Is it that the country is, as you sort of alluded to before, being shamed on the international stage or is it just the sheer persistence of groups saying we're not going away? Well, I... Yes, it is a combination of those things, but there is also the prior question as to whether, in fact, Universal Periodic Review does bring change. So there's, so right. there's, so there's an interesting point here, you know, which is the question about what does cause change for queer communities and queer, queer representation and rights and so on. Now, I'm not entirely convinced myself that you could say that this process of Universal Periodic Review 
You know, it's a, it's an international bureaucratic process that is really about information gathering and sharing at the elite political level. One of the problems with accessing this this process that is a problem for the kinds of uh, local civil society organisations that we're talking about is that it's expensive, you know, to, to become involved in this kind of international, transnational rights promotion activity costs money and you could argue that that money might be better spent in, in other ways like health budgets in local civil society organisations or something. So there's a perennial kind of tension here and conversation among civil society activists activists who never have enough money, of course, mm -hmm. about how to spend resources. But the thing about Universal Periodic Review, which I think is really important, one thing about it is that it is a way of the international human rights regime backing LGBT populations and communities in the countries in the region and saying, we, you know, we stand with you and we're going to try and hold your political elites to account you know, by virtue of being part of the UN and now in ASEAN by virtue of having their own human rights declaration and their own human rights regime, political leaders are making statements about the importance of treating all human beings with respect, treating them equally and respecting their rights. So when that doesn't happen, political leaders should be held to account. Now, one of the things that is really useful about these processes is that it's a way of publicly documenting the fact that there are queer communities in these countries. You know, one of the things that we have seen repeatedly is political leaders saying, oh, you know, there's, there's no queers in my country. <laughs> um, if you have a process like this where it's put on the public record, you know, that there are these communities, that they do exist, they're normal people like anyone else trying to improve their society, then that potentially can change the conversation. It's also a way of documenting what has changed or what has not changed over time. And one of the things that is really good about this particular process, doesn't happen in all such processes, but with this particular process, it does allow civil society organisations access to be able to talk in their own voice at every level of the, the stage you know, from data collection in the home country all the way through to speaking behind a microphone in, in Geneva, although you might only get one minute <laughs> to be able to give your report. But if you talk really fast and you're really succinct, you can put there on the public record in these important political, international political fora, the fact that we're here, we're queer, get used to it, you know. Uh, and start respecting our rights. And sometimes the power of that one minute is actually how it is taken on video and shared on social media and all that, that side of Absolutely. things as well. Anthony Langlois, Associate Professor in International Relations at Flinders University, thanks so much for joining us on Worldwide Wave. A great pleasure. Now, the first thing I've got to say is we got a lot more of a chat with Anthony, which we're going to put up as a special extended interview because he had such great depth of knowledge across right across Southeast Asia. So we actually went into the different countries and what's happening. Yeah, that would be great to hear a bit more in depth on the um, specific situations. But that social media thing, I mean, I think sometimes living in a place like Australia, we hear so many negative things about social media. The power of it in, in, in countries... Um, uh, like some of these countries, and if you're in a rural area, yeah. you know, just knowing there's other 
other queer Absolutely. people around. Absolutely. We tend to assume, because, you know, the frog leap effect, as we call it, with globalisation and mobile phone technology, it's given incredible power to to people who have no contact, suddenly have this cheap, affordable, and, you know, we've all travelled in South Asia, the, the, the connectivity is pretty good, actually, and often makes ours look pretty bad, you know, <laughs> as in the, the Wi-Fi, um, all that. So, And every young person in Cambodia or whatever has a smartphone these days pretty much. And I've seen some of these websites, Utopia Asia, if anyone's used that one, that you see all the community organisations on there. So, you know. And, and, the, and the political side as well, yeah. the, the advocacy side, the, yep. you know, sending of petitions, the, all those sorts of things which can happen much, uh, much easier now. Want to hear more? Find out about LGBT life in over 100 countries. Download free podcasts of this show. Subscribe to iTunes or follow us on Twitter. Visit joy.org.au slash worldwide wave. This is Dede Utamo from Kayana Santara in Surabaya, Indonesia, speaking on Worldwide Wave. A huge thank you to our guest tonight, Andrew Langlois, the Associate Professor in International Relations at Flinders University. He's got a book out. We've posted that on our Facebook page. And don't forget that extended podcast will be up tomorrow night on our um, webpage and podcasts. Yes, and thank you to everyone who's, uh, who's shared with us this week on Facebook, Dwayne, Jennifer Grant, Stefan and a heap more. And you can join us on W3Joy on Facebook. And behind the scenes, we need to thank our podcaster, Peter, and our social media master, Dean. Thanks for listening to another podcast from World Wide Wave, the show that takes you around the globe, one country at a time. World Wide Wave is the international news and current affairs show on Australia's LGBT radio station, Joy 94.9. You can listen live every Tuesday night on 94.9 FM in Melbourne and online at joy.org.au. You'll find all our podcasts at joy.org.au slash worldwidewave, or follow us on Facebook for the latest international LGBT news. Search W3Joy on Facebook now. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.